Countershading is a form of camouflage wherein an animal will be lighter on the bottom and darker on the top. This camouflage method is thought to be beneficial because these animals will tend to be darker in situ on the bottom because of the shadow cast by their bodies from the sun shining down on them from above. To be naturally lighter down where they will be shadowed then can cause them to flatten from the point of view of a potential predator, denying that predator three-dimensional information about that camouflaged animal that might allow them to fully comprehend its size, its shape, where its wings or fins or legs or eyes are located, and in which direction that animal is moving or facing. Disruptive coloration is another natural method of camouflage found across the animal kingdom. Creatures with this type of coloration tend to blend into their environment, their outlines broken up, by strangely high-contrast patterns across their bodies. Many types of snake, bird, and large cat utilize disruptive coloration, as do giraffes, though like most creatures with these patterns, when outside their normal ecosystem, their coloration stands out in a big way. A giraffe anywhere but their savanna habitat are more obtrusive than other animals, not less, and the same is true of cheetahs, butterflies, and Mexican vine snakes. These and other methods of camouflage found in nature eventually found their way to military applications, with perhaps the most famous examples found in camouflage patterns worn by soldiers, the dark green patterns on their clothing standing out in civilian life or in the Arctic, but blending in amazingly well in forests and jungles. But a less famous application is probably the most interesting, though it utilizes very different patterns and colors than those generally found on individual soldiers. During World War I, a zoologist named John Carr proposed that the British Navy make use of patterns like those found in nature to help break up the shapes of their ships, and to flatten them out by lightening the paint on the portions often darkened by shade, and darkening the paint on the portions often exposed to sunlight. At this moment in time, the British Navy was substantial and powerful, but it was also being picked at and whittled down by German submarines. The idea was to prevent these submarines from being able to accurately target British ships, allowing the ships to respond to the submarines' inaccurate shots with a counter-strike, because the subs will have given themselves away with that first missed shot. The Navy gave Carr a listen, but didn't take his advice very seriously. They test-painted ten ships using counter-shading and disruptive coloration methods, a scheme called party coloring by Carr, but after Churchill, who supported giving this a shot, left the Admiralty, they went back to using plain gray paint schemes, as they've traditionally done. They decided that it would take too much effort to keep repainting the ships for use in different locations, different times of day, and to account for other variables that seemed to render the concept less useful when left unoptimized. A similar concept was proposed a few years later, though, and this time by a painter named Norman Wilkinson, Wilkinson proposed that, rather than simply flattening the ships and attempting to hide their details from distant viewers, they instead utilize highly contrasting lines and other geometric shapes that would, from a distance, leave potential attackers unable to tell how big the ship is, which direction it's headed, and which pieces of the ship are which. These lines combined into a pattern 
later called Dazzle Camouflage, are quite striking, and were in fact the subject of a great many paintings after the war, due to their bizarreness, and how they mess with one's perception of shape and form and perspective, kind of a large-scale optical illusion. The main downside of Dazzle Camouflage, and this is backed up by what limited data has been made available about naval combat from this period, is that it makes ships more visible. Painting ships a basic gray causes them to blend in somewhat with certain types of sky and sea, especially when they're on the horizon. These blindingly garish stripes and other shapes make the ships look somewhat clownish, like a cubist painter got their hands on an unlimited amount of paint and a great big ship-shaped canvas, and then just went at it. The upside, though, based on that same data, is that it did seem to make these ships harder to hit. Harder to hit accurately, at least. Of the British naval ships hit by torpedoes during 1918, the latter portion of World War I, 54% of those without Dazzle camouflage sank, while only 43% of those with Dazzle sank. And connected to those figures, 52% of torpedo-struck ships without Dazzle were hit amidships in their belly, essentially, while only 41% of those with Dazzle were hit in that comparably more vulnerable sinking-inducing area. This is especially striking because the majority of ships with Dazzle camouflage were also larger and thus should have made for bigger targets, that these on average larger ships were hit less effectively than their smaller, non-Dazzled brethren indicates that this camouflage method might have done some good, and US data from around that same period indicates even better numbers, though with an incredibly small sample size, so take this with a grain of salt. 78 uncamouflaged merchant ships were sunk, while only 18 merchant ships with the dazzle paint applied were sunk. No camouflaged U.S. Navy ships were sunk during that period. New technologies that were deployed during World War II, like radar and superior submarine scopes, rendered dazzle camouflage less useful, which means these ship patterns saw use for a relatively short period of time before they were broadly replaced with other paint jobs. That said, the influence of Dazzle camouflage remains, with the Royal Navy introducing Dazzle painting competitions on some of their ships, and the U.S. maintaining a false bow wave stripe along the front of their ships, a fake painted wave that can make it seem to distant viewers that the ship is headed in a different direction from its true direction. One of the most common contemporary use cases for the dramatic geometric dazzle patterns that were once utilized on ships is on test automobiles when they're being driven on open tracks. Not wanting the press to see what's under development, and not wanting competitors to be able to copy their shapes and aerodynamic tricks, Formula One race cars and cars being tested for the consumer market are sometimes masked in this kind of paint job to keep spies from getting an accurate idea of what they are trying and what might be the next big thing in the automobile industry. Today I'd like to talk about another smaller-scale use case of something quite similar to Dazzle Camouflage that's becoming increasingly popular and which is crossing over from the purely visual to other senses as well. listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to unspool today comes from the New York Times, and it's entitled, 
Activate this bracelet of silence, and Alexa can't eavesdrop. This piece focuses on a recently developed device, shaped like a bracelet, that allows the wearer to prevent other nearby devices from listening in on their conversations. This bracelet was reportedly developed after a disagreement between two of its creators, who are married and who are also both computer science professors at the University of Chicago, over whether or not they should have an Amazon Echo speaker in their shared workspace at home. The Echo speaker, like Google Home and other similar voice-activated assistant devices, functions by listening for trigger words, at which point it starts recording so that it can capture audio, quickly sending that audio to the cloud for processing, and then returning information ranging from what the weather's going to be like to trivia games that the owners can play. These devices are not meant to be listening 24-7, in the sense that they're recording everything said within range of their microphones. But in practice, they are wildly imperfect, and contractors that have been hired by the makers of these devices to check in on the quality of the recorded audio, which should be things like, hey Alexa, what's the weather going to be like tomorrow? These contractors instead hear interactions that are clearly meant to be private, including audio captured during drug deals and audio captured in the middle of sex. The issue here is that voice recognition is an imperfect craft, and as a result, these devices' trigger words or phrases are often accidentally activated by near matches or what sound like near matches to the device's microphones. Research done at Northeastern University recently discovered that when exposed to 120 hours of TV shows, an array of these devices woke up a few dozen times on average, in each case recording everything they heard for a time after the misheard trigger word turned on their recorders. This bracelet of silence, then, is meant to keep these devices from hearing anything that is said by the wearer or by people near the wearer. It accomplishes this by utilizing ultrasonic sound, which means higher-pitched sound than most humans can perceive, which is picked up by these microphones, blocking out other noise it might otherwise capture. The bracelet itself is kind of hacked together, but it does look interesting in a cartoony way, almost like a very chunky, spiky punk bracelet, but instead of spikes, it has little speakers that emit the ultrasonic sound. Interestingly, when sound overlaps with itself, it can cancel itself out, leading to non-sound. So a device of this kind that emits sound that was stationary might have issues with blind spots, and any hidden microphones in one of those blind spots would still pick up conversations by those wishing to conceal their words. Because this is worn on the wrist, however, even subtle arm movements while talking substantially reduces those blind spots, almost completely in some cases. So this is an instance where the worn version of a technology, the portable version, actually works better than the non-portable, non-worn variety because of the random movements that people make while going about their business. There are concerns about this type of device being used in public, of course. That it blocks all electronic microphones within range means that if you turned it on in a public place like a coffee shop, it would disrupt all of the microphones on all of the phones held by other people nearby. It could also disrupt the microphone components of cochlear implants and other such devices, and it might truly annoy or even harm, depending on the strength of the signal, young people and dogs, both of which are capable of hearing higher pitches than most human adults. That said, it is possible that this device or something like it may become available for sale at some point in the near future, 
as venture capitalists have already expressed interest, though the makers have already shown what goes into it and said that it costs about $20 to make, so there's a decent chance that they may instead or also make the schematics available for free, opening the door to community-built upgrades, and relatively simple and inexpensive, maybe even open-source, homemade models. This concept is similar in principle and approach to another piece of technology that I talked about in an episode of the show called Hardware Parasites back in early 2019. The technology that I covered in that episode was called Project Alias, which is a 3D printed device that you set atop your voice assistant hardware so that it can't hear you and so that you can bypass some of the device's programming, changing settings and such, using the Project Alias as an intermediary. Both devices are responses to what an increasing number of people, especially those within the world of computer science and related technology-focused fields, are concerned about. The ubiquity of tracking technologies in our environments, and the consequent loss of privacy, and even, at times, the consequent loss of the expectation of privacy. There's a concept in the world of artificial intelligence, particularly within the subworld of machine learning, called adversarial examples. Adversarial examples are inputs that cause these models to glitch, to make a mistake, to miss data that they otherwise might have captured. A machine learning research paper first published in late 2014, entitled Explaining and Harnessing Adversarial Examples, documents some simple examples of this concept in practice. In one such example, by applying what looks to be random noise over the top of an image of a panda, the researchers could trick a machine learning system into thinking that the image of a panda is actually, with a 99.3% confidence rating, an image of a gibbon, a completely different animal, although the image looks essentially the same to us humans. Further, They were able to show that you could apply such filters using everyday technologies like smartphones, taking a photo of an adversarial pattern printed out on paper, applying that pattern over a photo in your phone, and then causing that photo to become unreadable by machines, or to be read as something else entirely by software that is very, very good at figuring out what's in images, typically. Another similar project found that current-generation autonomous car software the software that processes images of what is in the car's environment to figure out how to best safely drive through that environment, found that by simply applying paint in the right way, either to change traffic signs or the lines on the road, you could cause most of these systems to crash into other cars, to drive off roads, or to stop completely, unable to figure out a safe way to escape from the lines that you've drawn around it. As government and private surveillance expands, filling our social spaces with security cameras, some empowered by facial recognition or by hidden microphones, many intended to make life easier for someone, but which in the trade-off captures a great deal of what are meant to be private interactions, it makes sense that people in these spaces would be keen to push back using their knowledge of how these technologies work to take advantage of these technologies' weaknesses. Because of that increasing ubiquity, though, a great many of the counter-solutions are taking the shape of personal devices. Project Alias, that 3D-printed parasite-like device that you place atop your smart speaker, is pocketable, but many of the most popular adversarial products thus far have taken the shape of clothing or personal accessories. 
things that you could probably get away with wearing in public, and which in some cases would only be recognizable as adversarial examples through the lenses or microphones of these surveillance devices. The technology built into the 2014 Jammer Coat, which blocks radio waves and thus prevents scammers from wirelessly soaking up information from your smartphone and wireless credit cards, has since found its way into handbags and wallets, for instance. So-called stealthware clothing is made from silver-plated synthetic fabric that is thermally reflective, which in practice reduces the wearer's thermal signature, making them less observable through long-range infrared cameras. The first generation of sunglasses line, called Reflecticles, was released in 2016, and the newest generation hit online shelves in mid-2019. These Reflecticles reflect both visible and infrared light, which can blind or partially blind traditional flash photography and infrared-based security cameras. So that means face-mapping technologies, like those used in many security cameras, especially those that utilize facial tracking, won't be able to see your face. And even technologies like the face mapping tools used to unlock iPhones and other smartphones will not work if you have these on. The technologies won't be able to map your face, and thus, you'll be, if not invisible to them, unreadable by them. Probably the least currently useful on an everyday basis, but possibly the most democratic of these technologies because of the low cost of access, is what's sometimes called Dazzle Makeup, a makeup application technique sometimes referred to as CV Dazzle for computer vision Dazzle, which is meant to break up the shape of your face so that the tricks software uses to both recognize you as a human and to compare your features to other faces in its database will not work. This makeup application technique is similar, in some ways, to the navel dazzle techniques that I talked about in the intro, using tricks like darkening areas that catch more light and lightening areas that lay within shadow, and breaking up lines that indicate where one's eyes, nose, and mouth are. It's possible to adjust one's hair, apply some often asymmetric makeup, and to go completely unnoticed, or at least untrackable, by even very sophisticated facial recognition systems. I say this is probably less useful than the other options available at the moment, because although this makeup capably tricks these surveillance devices, it's incredibly obvious to humans that you are up to something. The makeup looks quite weird, as do the requisite hairstyles and other accoutrements. By definition, these aesthetics are meant to make you look like not a human, and thus if you walk down the street with this kind of style applied to your face, it's likely that you will stand out and be memorable to everyone except these cameras. The aforementioned sunglasses and clothing, on the other hand, could possibly blend in with the right crowd, allowing you to go unnoticed by people and technology if you play your cards right. The microphone-inhibiting bracelet could evolve in the same direction, though at the moment it would definitely look more at home in some kind of anime or as part of some kind of cosplay than in real life. I suspect we will see more surreptitious versions of this in the near future, though, if such models don't already exist, just below the radar, which is also possible. That these adversarial wardrobe options are even a thing, though, in whatever shape, is an indication that, as more autonomous technologies arrive, which very often rely on surveilling, identifying, and tracking to operate, there will likely continue to be pushback against these technologies. Because although they do offer a great deal of value already, and have a great deal of potential to offer even more value, 
Autonomous cars alone could save tens of thousands of lives each year if they reach their potential, not to mention what they could mean for sustainable transportation and the shape of cities that no longer need to build so much infrastructure for mostly unused cars. But no matter how good they get and how valuable they are, they require, at the moment at least, that we give up a great deal of privacy in the trade-off. And that's just what's happening now. There's a good chance that for larger steps to be taken, the trade-offs will need to get bigger and bigger, leading to potentially even larger, if not Luddite-scale, smashing-the-machines-style pushback in response. This type of dazzle and disruption-based counter-move actually seems fairly elegant and measured to me, as it allows the apparatus doing the snooping to survive while allowing the individual to opt out. It would be more ideal, from some perspectives, to make participating in such a surveillance arrangement an opt-in situation to begin with, but support currently seems to be accumulated on the side of the government and China and the UK, with private companies in the US, which are making solid enough cases for more cameras, more microphones, more tracking, that huge swaths of the population seem to think that the trade-off is a worthwhile one. And again, there are good reasons that people support such technologies and their widespread implementation, from the possible and perceived security benefits to the consumer-level ask-your-voice-activated assistant for information benefits. There is some neat stuff happening out there, some convenient and futuristic stuff, and some seriously beneficial security stuff that would not be possible, at least with current technologies, lacking this kind of privacy invasion trade-off. That people are figuring out ways to opt out on a personal level then, while still allowing the majority to be part of the system that they by default or intention choose to be a part of, seems productive in that it makes the point, allows them to extract themselves, and makes these larger surveillance structures uncomfortable without completely dismantling them and the benefits that they provide to others. That dynamic will almost certainly change with time, however, as the technologies involved continue to change and as support shifts with the advent of new, probably increasingly obvious oversteps and awkward, one-way beneficial applications of these technologies. It's also thinkable to imagine a government banning anything that would prevent public surveillance in the name of security. And in fact, such measures have already been put into effect in some spaces, like in banks, in some government buildings, and in airports. You very often can't get away with wearing a mask, for instance. It's also thinkable to imagine a moment in which it becomes nearly impossible to avoid these systems without directly attacking them in some way. No longer overwhelming the microphones with ultrasonics, but instead breaking them with some more powerful force, or blinding the cameras permanently, rather than just disallowing them from seeing an individual face. This is something we've seen to a limited degree as well, especially within the context of larger disruptive events, like the ongoing protests in Hong Kong, where protesters have been known to tear down government infrastructure that seems to house surveillance cameras and other equipment. The buildup on each side of this cold war will likely continue, in other words, until and unless one dynamic wins out in the legal sense. Anyone wearing dazzle makeup is arrested, or companies and government entities are no longer able to snoop at will, the privacy of citizens becoming more important in the eyes of the law than the many potential benefits offered by this sort of tracking. At the moment, larger movements seem to favor an infrastructural win for the surveillance apparatus. 
But at this moment, at the beginning of 2020 at least, the Cold War could easily shift in either direction. The book that I'd like to recommend this week is called Severance by the author Ling Ma. Severance was described as an apocalyptic satire which is part of why I picked it up. And it turned out that I was reading this book right at the beginning of the novel Coronavirus Scare in the beginning of 2020. And this book is actually kind of an end-of-the-world scenario predicated on a very unique type of disease, but there were enough similarities between the real-world disease, the coronavirus that was happening at the time, and the Shen virus, which exists within this book, that it made for some disconcerting reading. That said, the style and tone of the book are just fantastic. It is a lot of fun to read. It's an uncomfortable read because of the subject matter and because of the character's perspective on things, essentially surviving and living and trying to figure out why to keep living within a fairly dystopian scenario. And then the disease itself and what it represents and the metaphor that exists throughout the entire book is also immensely uncomfortable but in a somewhat fun and entertaining way. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Severance by Ling Ma. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsnotethings.com. You can find some of my other work at exilelifestyle.com, brainlenses.com, and askcolin.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram and other networks of that kind. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week.